First Thessalonians chapter three, beginning in verse 11, it says, now may our God and father himself and our Lord Jesus Christ direct our way to you. And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love to one another and to all, just as we do to you, so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all of the saints. You know... I couldn't help but noticing that when we were worshiping, a lot of you weren't singing. And I asked the worship team in the in between the services, I said, what is it? Why is it that people aren't singing? Um, What would motivate you to sing? Now, I sometimes think that maybe it's familiarity or maybe it's lyrics or maybe it's something that you grew up with. I know that I grew up with before I ever became a Christian. uh, We sang songs, you know, the songs, uh, the Beatles songs. All you need is love all together now. All you need is love, love, love is all you need. Now, we might read. Paul's portion and think, yeah, the Beatles got it right. All you need is love. And then I remember, of course, growing up in the 60s that Sonny and Cher had parents who grew up in the 30s and were aware of the harsh realities of the of the Depression. So they were singing a new kind of a song. They sang, they say our love won't pay the rent before it's earned. Our money's all been spent. Oh, I guess that's so you know we don't have a pot, but at least I'm sure of all the things we've got. Faith. Yeah, you know the song. We're told that all we need is love, and then you go, oh, wait a minute, I have to pay the rent. Having love is great, but what about a job and... What about health and what about circumstances and what about my life? And Paul, when he's writing these words and he's praying this prayer, it's to a group of people who have experienced enormous loss, accusation, persecution. These are men and women who are living in a pit of despair and loneliness, but yet God's grace and God's mercy has been manifested. They believe the gospel. They received hope. Paul has sent Timothy and Timothy has returned with great news that even under the most painful of circumstances, they're still serving the Lord. And so the chapter began with Paul's review of the activities before and after the visit to Thessaly in verses 1 through 5. And then Paul's review led to Paul's report, the return of Timothy, and how the apostles rejoiced at the great news of their continuing to serve and love the Lord in verses 6 through 9. And the review and the report led to a request. Paul prays. For himself and for the church. And what I want you to note that in the opening part of the prayer, Paul prays that he is going to be able to return to them and see them face to face. Bad news? At least on the surface, it doesn't look like his prayer is being answered because 
Paul won't be able to return. He's being hindered by Satan. He prays that he will be able to return, but it doesn't look like he's going to be able to return. And then he has prayed about an attitude of gratitude. He has prayed that their faith will increase. He has prayed that their love will abound. He prays that holiness will begin to mark their life and and mark their character. And it looks like those prayers are answered. Paul prays. That they will have the strength to live holy lives. What does that mean? To live a holy life. What does it even mean to live? We need jobs. We need money. But is that really life worth living? Can you imagine asking God, God, what is it that I need in order to have a real life? We know what the answer in part is. It's forgiveness of sin and hope. It's being concerned with the internal rather than the external. The Lord wants us to have joyful gratitude in verse 9. Be fervent and earnest in prayer in verses 10 through 11. Abounding in love in verses 11 and 12. Established in holiness in verse 13. It was Chuck Swindoll who long ago said, quote, We substitute the artificial for the authentic, the phony for the real, particularly in three ways, mentally, emotionally, and spiritually, unquote. And I was thinking about that. I I was thinking, how do we substitute the artificial for the authentic? It may be something as silly and as stupid as an electric light versus a real candle. But I think it goes far more deeper. We substitute human knowledge for godly wisdom. We substitute the opinions of people rather than the revelation of God. We care more about the opinions of people rather than what God says in his word. People are far more likely to get their opinions from Oprah than from Obadiah. What is it about us that we think that the answers lie with the people who reject God, reject Christ, and reject the promises of God? Second, we substitute feelings for facts. And we are far more likely to be driven by our feelings even when the facts tell us something different. I feel hurt. I feel alone. I feel neglected. I feel rejected. Whatever your feelings are. And the third substitute is perhaps the most damaging and the most wicked. We can substitute the mental world, and we can substitute in the emotional world, but think about what happens when you substitute in the, temp, in, the, in the spiritual world that which is temporal for that which is eternal. We give our lives to the urgent instead of the important. We pursue the tangible, the visible, the quantifiable instead of the spiritual realities which will make real life possible. Not just in this world, but in the next world. And so Paul's focus becomes not the external, but the internal. He prays. 
And make no mistake about it, Paul's prayer doesn't change the nature or the character of God. Paul's prayer doesn't make the accusation, the opposition, the persecution. Paul's prayer doesn't make what seems like the temporal become the eternal. But the reality is the moment that Paul concedes to pray, he has a willingness to hear what God has to say. And make no mistake about it, the moment you are willing to hear what God has to say concerning a matter in your life, you're well on the way to transformation. Paul's prayer becomes our model for doing something different rather than just simply complaining or talking to ourselves. When we listen to God, we change. We change the way we think, and then we change the way we feel, and then we change the way we respond. You'll remember in verse 10 of chapter 3, it says, Night and day, praying exceedingly that we may see your face and perfect, that is to make or, or add to and complete that which is lacking in your faith. So Paul prays. Paul prays continually. Paul prays persistently. Paul prays fervently. And then look as he continues his prayer. Look at verse 11. Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus Christ direct our way to you. Remember what I've already said? Paul desires to see them. But we have no record that he ever makes it back. The apostles' privilege includes preaching the word of God and teaching the truth and leading the flock and caring as a shepherd and working as a witness and then mobilizing the flock for service. But Paul's privileges include praying for them and then demonstrating a godly passion for them. He prays, look carefully, he prays to God the Father and he prays to the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, this is important on so many different levels. The fact that Paul prays to both the Father and the Son tells us something about what Paul believes about the nature and character of the Father and the nature and character of the Son. Paul believes that the Father hears and responds and, and that it's true that the Son hears and responds Clearly, God is out there. Paul believes the Father is majestic and eternal and supreme. But he's also accessible. He's also available. He's also able to lead and to guide. And the moment that you throw up your hands, not in frustration, but in submission, and say, Lord, speak to my heart. Give me an idea of the direction I need to go and the protection that I need. Paul prays. And you'll recall that Satan had placed barriers and obstacles in Paul's path in an attempt to get back to a face-to-face -face meeting with them. And he had expressed great gratitude and joy in verse 9. Remember where it says, For what thanks can we render to God for you for all the joy with which we rejoice for your sake? They heard the news that in spite of the pain, in spite of the persecution, in spite of the accusation, in spite of all of the reasons why their life was falling apart, that they continued to love and serve God. They were 
standing strong in their faith. Now, listen carefully, because this becomes an important transition. Their faith has stood firm in the midst of persecution and with growing faith comes the opportunity of a growing love. They grow in faith. They grow in love. Paul understands something. Paul prays that their faith would mature. Now he's going to pray that their love will superabound and overflow because he knows something that you need to know. Paul knows that a growing and a maturing faith ought to result in a growing and maturing love. Are you growing up? Are you loving and trusting the Lord a little bit more? Is it displayed in, in, the, in the way that you trust Him and live for Him and, and, and love Him? So Paul's great prayer reveals our great need encompassing love. Look what it says in verse 12. And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love to one another and to all just as we do to you. Now here's what we know. Faith is present in the little church at Thessalonica. Love is present and growing in the little church at Thessalonica. He prays that it will increase and abound. And you know what's really interesting about that? Is because even if there is love right at this very moment in your church, if there is love in your marriage, if there is love in your relationships, isn't it great to know that just like there's room to grow in your faith, there's room to grow in your love? We can add a little bit. Paul's prayer reminds them that there's a link between the Lord we pray to and the unselfish love that we lay claim to. And he answers a question that each and every one of you should ask. Where does love come from? Look at the answer in verse 12. And may the Lord make you increase in love. Who's the source of love? God. First John, John writes, God is love. It is the Lord himself and the Lord Jesus Christ who becomes the source of love. A little bit later on um, next year, I scheduled a, a date to go to Amarillo, Texas. I'm going to be speaking at one of our churches there. And I don't know if you've ever been to Amarillo. I have a friend who was who broke down there and had to stay for a couple of days. And so she said, hey, what do you do in Amarillo for fun? And the man said, you might not know this, but Amarillo, Texas is the source of helium in the whole wide world. We have the only helium plant on the planet Earth. And the girl goes, oh, what? What time of the year does it bloom? Well, it's not that kind of plant. It's a plant where we get the helium out of the atmosphere. Now, you might think, what does this have to do with anything? If you want helium, you have to go to Amarillo, Texas. If you want love, you have to go to God the Father through Jesus Christ the Son. You see, faith and love 
come from the Father through the Son. And so when Paul says, and may the Lord make you increase and abound in love, the word increase in the original language means to multiply. It means to multiply over and over again. It's the same word that that you would use for people who place deposits in bank accounts and you begin to earn money, interest on the account that you have deposited. And the word abound is a different word. It means to superabound or to excel or, or to overflow. It would be the word that you would use to describe as you pour into a cup and the cup begins to fill up and then it flows over and it begins to flood everything around it. You probably heard the statement, You can't drink from an empty cup. And you can't love from an empty heart. And Paul isn't talking about sloppy agape or mindless sentiment. In other words, he's not talking about this warm, fuzzy feeling that just simply wells up inside of your stomach. And you've all heard me define sentiment as Emotion without commitment. Sentiment is what you do when you see a holiday movie on TV or you go to the movies and you see a wonderful story and it makes you laugh and it makes you cry. And then you continue to live the same miserable life that you're living. It's emotion without commitment. It isn't an emotion that causes you to change the way that you're thinking or change the way that you're living or to have a holy life. The danger, of course, is when you read Paul's words in verse 12, when it says and his prayer to make you increase, abound in love, and you completely miss the point and you confuse the word love and you attach to it, not the biblical meaning of the word, but the worldly meaning of the word. Oh, I really love that. What does that mean? Well, you know, I really love it. Versus hate it. At almost every wedding, I close with a poem. We've gone through the entire wedding and I come to the point where I'm getting ready to pronounce them husband and wife. And I say to them, every couple should remember that what the world calls love is not something man invented, but it comes from God above and it can be neglected and it can be abused and it can be perverted and distorted, misguided or misused, or it can be developed by living every day near to God our Father and in following in His way. For God alone can teach you the meaning of true love and He can help establish the life you're dreaming of in which you live together in happiness and peace, enjoying married blessings that day by day increase. For love that is immortal has its source in God above. And the love you give each other is founded on His love. And though upon your wedding day it seems like yours and yours alone, if you but ask, God takes your love and blends it with his own. Even people in the world have passion and affection. 
But when Paul prays that your love will increase and abound, he is not simply talking about a passion. He's not simply talking about affection. He's talking about a willingness to make a decision and a commitment when things are dark and things are lonely and things are empty and things aren't exactly the way that you thought it was going to be. When people face tragedy, when they face suffering and pain and affliction and persecution, it's not unusual for them to become selfish and demanding and self-centered. Warren Wearsby was fond of saying, quote, What life does to us depends on what life finds in us. And nothing reveals the true inner man like the furnace of affliction. I love it so much I'm going to repeat it. What life does to us depends on what life finds in us. Isn't that interesting? When pain, when suffering, when affliction, when persecution finds you, what does it find inside of you? What bubbles up to the surface of your soul? What kind of love is Paul talking about? Again, it's a love that's directed toward one another. He says, this is the kind of love that I want you to demonstrate one to another. A selfless love, a sacrificial love, a godly love, a supernatural love that's empowered by the Holy Spirit who has its presence in the Father and in the Son and demonstrated to one another as a kind of commitment. Love can only be known from the action that it prompts. That bears repeating. Love can only be known by the action that it prompts. God's love is seen in the gift of his son. Now we understand when people say God loves you. Well, agape love is a love that's used in the New Testament to describe the gift of his son. In John chapter 4, verses 9 and 10. But obviously this isn't the love of complacency and it isn't even the, the, the love of passion or affection. It's drawn out by the excellency of the thing that's loved. And in Romans chapter 5, verse 8, we learn that here is love in that while we were yet sinners, Jesus Christ comes and he dies for us. Love can only be known from the action it prompts. And here's what what God sees. God sees you in your desperate circumstances. He sees you in your dark circumstances. He sees you in your lonely circumstances. He sees you in your wicked circumstances. And he sees you in your guilty and culpable circumstances. And he sends the son to die for you. So that you could experience hope and grace and mercy and love. Paul, of course, will describe God's love in memorable fashion in 1 Corinthians 13. It's the love that reaches out and overflows and begins to multiply, not just simply towards one another, but Paul writes, and to all. What? 
Yeah, this is the kind of love that spills over to the unattractive, to the orphan, to the sick, to the hateful, to the enemy, to the murderer, to the unclean, to the homeless, to the prisoner, to the disease, to the spiteful, to the oppressor, to the poor, to the unclothed, to the lonely, to the sinner, to the combatant, to the dictator. It's interesting that we are given, number one, the answer, where does the love come from? It comes from God. Number two, we're given the admonition that we have the, 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 the ability to love one another. But Paul wants a kind of abounding, overflowing love that will spill over, not just simply on the people that we are supposed to care about. But the people we have no intention of caring about. And now all of a sudden we understand something. That as God increases our faith. As our lives are marked by a joyful attitude. We have the opportunity to experience a kind of love whose origin and expression finds its culmination in the person of Jesus Christ himself. And we begin to care about people that we never, ever purposed in our heart ever to care about. So love in the biblical sense means a willingness to do what's right, to do what's proper, in spite of passion. And in spite of affection, agape love is a love that begins in the heart of God and then continues through the will of the person making the choice to love because it is freely given to the unworthy and to the undeserved. This is the kind of love that God has for you. God commands his love toward us in that while we were sinners, Christ dies. It's the love of God for undeserving sinners. For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, how much more being reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. Paul's argument is this, that if Jesus's death provides hope, forgiveness and reconciliation to God, what do you suppose his resurrection from the dead is going to provide for you? Nothing less than the ongoing provision that you're going to need for all eternity. So why would you substitute mentally or emotionally or spiritually for something that is so generous? In Romans 5, 5, it says now hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us. This is not something that you have to work up inside of your own heart. It isn't, okay, Jesus, I want to feel it coming. Oh, Lord, give me a love. Not feeling it, Lord. Because it's not a passion or an affection. Simply a passion or or an affection. It's a willingness to say, in spite of how I'm feeling, I'm going to do exactly what you want me to do. Love stays the course, even when it's tested by sickness or selfishness or sourness. Love doesn't leak or evaporate. A lady came into my office and she said, I've lost my love for my husband. And I went, 
she'd be like, what are you doing? And I said, I'm looking for the love that you lost. And you, you get it. You, you understand. It, it isn't something visible that you can hide under the carpet. So how does love grow? We know what the source is. It's God. How does it grow? It's fed by the love of Christ until it grows so large to include even everyone that you wouldn't normally put on the list. And so Paul says there's no exceptions to all men, he prayed. Including the people whose lives seem bent on destroying yours. But we see that with an attitude of gratitude, with an increase in love, with an increase in faith comes Love's great results were established in holiness. Look what it says in verse 13. So that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all the saints. This is so packed, full of so much information. We've already answered the question. Where does love come from? It comes from the Lord. How does love grow? It grows through Christ. What does love do? That's the answer in verse 13. What does it do? Paul puts in brief, powerful language so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with his saints. There are many fabulous results, indescribable consequences for a heart that's filled with God's faith and God's love. But here Paul mentions our presentation to the Father by the Son when he shows up in reality. And make no mistake about it, you are missing the point if for some reason you think at the end of chapter 3 that it's not real, that the coming of Jesus isn't real. It is real. The coming of Jesus plays a part in motivating us towards holy living, but it isn't the single motivation. We're motivated by faith. We're motivated by love. And because we're motivated by faith and we're motivated by love, we're transformed. Paul prays so that he may establish your hearts. The word establish is different than what was used earlier in 1 Thessalonians chapter 3. It's a Greek word that means to prop up or to support or to buttress or to confirm, or to make sure. Picture in your mind an earth-moving tractor that digs into the dirt and makes and pushes a wall of dirt in order to support something. It's a prop. So that He, that is the Lord Jesus Christ, may establish your heart. Who establishes you? Jesus establishes you. The church doesn't establish you. The pastor doesn't establish you. Your ability to memorize scripture doesn't establish you. Your ability to go out and witness doesn't establish you. 
Your success doesn't establish you and your failure doesn't establish you. You are established before the Father because of faith in Christ and love for Christ. Now think about what Paul was saying. Faith in Jesus and love for Jesus transforms your heart and it makes you a different person. You live differently. Holy living. Holiness is God's way of doing things. It's different from how the world does things. When Jesus prayed to the Father, he says, hallowed be your name. When holiness is described about God, it means that God is separate and distinct. Love separates us and then allows us to live according to God's lifestyle. So when it's used to describe you, it means separate and distinct, set apart so that you can do what God wants you to do. I'll give an illustration. Imagine we have three wheelbarrows and one wheelbarrow is for hauling rocks and another wheelbarrow is for hauling dirt. And a third wheelbarrow is used for hauling manure. In a very real sense, you can call these holy wheelbarrows. Because they're set apart. Each one has a distinct and separate use. We fill one with manure. We fill one with dirt. We fill one with rocks. We never use any of them other than for the purpose that they're designed to be used for. When God saves you through Jesus Christ, you used to haul dirt and you used to haul rocks and you used to haul manure. But the Lord dumps the content of whatever it is that you used to haul and now he wants you to haul something else. Life-giving water. life sustaining bread life giving substances so that hearts can be changed and transformed and here when he uses the word hearts at the end of verse 13 when he says so that he may establish your hearts he means the whole person He means the sum and the substance. He doesn't just mean the physical organ that beats inside of your chest, but he's talking about the reality of the presentation of the way that you think and the way that you live and the way that you act. It is the sum and the substance of who you are. And the word unblameable means to be free from fault and blame. My favorite um, definition is not guilty of the charges. Read it again. That he may establish your hearts blameless. Not sinless. Blameless. Not guilty of the charges. Just this week I've been blamed. I just make it a little list of things I've been blamed for this week. This week I've been blamed for global warming. And my carbon footprint. I've been blamed for a broken health care system. I've been blamed for the collapse of the dollar. I've been blamed for our school's failure to educate our children. Now, can you imagine if you stood before God and God says, I want to talk with you a little bit about global warming. 
or the broken health care system or the collapse of the dollar or our school's failure to educate our children. Do you think that's what God's going to actually want to address with you? Or does God want to address something that you really can be blamed for? Your own heart. And your own sin. What if the only thing... What if the only thing you were responsible to before God was the things that you actually have said and actually have done? Is that enough to condemn you? But guess what Jesus does? Jesus not only fills you with faith and fills you with love. He recreates a character inside of you that becomes really representative of his own identity. When Paul talks about it, he's actually talking about Judgment Day. Before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all his saints. And in holiness, of course, means to be set apart and separated to God. And it's the Lord Jesus Christ who saves us. It's the Lord Jesus Christ. Who sets us apart. It's the Lord Jesus Christ who separates us to God. It's the Lord Jesus Christ alone who sets us free from the faults and the charges of sin that's been laid against us. Who else has this power? Do you know of such a person? If Jesus doesn't have the power to fill your heart with faith and love and to make you holy if Jesus doesn't possess the righteousness to present you faultless and blameless and sinless if Jesus doesn't have the power to save you you will not be saved but if Jesus does have the power to save you you can be saved Growing faith, godly love, brings an eternal quality to our living and love that lasts. So when is all this presentation going to take place? When Jesus returns. What happens when our lives are marked by a joyful gratitude? What happens when we embrace earnest prayer? What happens when we experience super abounding, overflowing, selfless love? You begin to live a life that becomes characterized by holiness. And our standard of purity doesn't come from the opinions of others. It comes from a life lived out of the resources given to us in the person of Jesus Christ. And that's why John will write and he'll say, when he shall appear, we shall be like him. So let me ask you a question. How long will you continue to replace the false substitutes in your life with something substantive? Tell me, just for a moment. I want you to imagine that you had the ability to build a building that would last until Jesus comes. Or imagine that you wrote a book that everyone read and everyone loved. No matter what you're able to do, if it has temporary 
stamped on it, then you might want to reconsider about things that are eternal. Paul prays and presents and promotes. Have a joyful attitude in verse 9. Be earnest in prayer in verse 10. Abound in love in verses 11 and 12. Be established in holiness in verse 13. Paul prays that their faith will mature. Paul prays that their love will grow. Paul prays that their character and their conduct will be holy and blameless. The love you give and the love you take will last as long as the love you make. Nothing lasts as long as love. Not earth, not sky, nor stars above. And facts and figures combined together predict, promote, forecast the weather. A thousand pounds of gold or feathers still weigh the same as silk and leather. And heaven's scale will weigh your soul. For weight and substance, sin's dark hole, and gold and silver and faithlessness, or joy and love and holiness, for God in heaven and justice require judgment for sin and cleansing and fire. And God has reserved in just the right place appropriate room for hearts filled with grace Love's mission accomplished, a savior, a cross. Sin seldom admires or requires a loss, but losing your life and losing the stain require a Christ if heaven's to gain. Grow wiser and stronger and deeper in love. Grow richer and deeper in riches above. More fervent the prayer. And practical giving provide the picture of a life worth living. That's what matters. That's what matters. Attitude. Gratitude. Faith. Love. Holiness. And now you begin to understand why Paul prays what Paul prays for them. And why I pray it for you. And why I encourage you to pray it for each other. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, create in our hearts an attitude of gratitude. Lord, give us the ability to grow in our faith in spite of persecution and pain and suffering and, and abuse and neglect. Lord, we know that with gratitude and with faith come ever increasing responsibilities to love. And Lord, we pray that our love will grow. For you and I'll, our love will grow towards each other. And that our love will grow even for those people that we made no provision for and no plans to care about. Lord, we pray that we wouldn't define love as affection and passion. But Lord, a willingness, a commitment to do what's right in the resources that you've given to us in the person of Jesus. 
And Lord, we pray that we would change. That we would be more like Jesus. That we would become holy. Separate. We exist, Lord, for you. Lord, you set us apart. Lord, we pray that you would use us according to your will to expand the kingdom. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand.